um, to be with you all in, in worship. Um, certainly for, for those on the prayer line, it's good to be with you as well. Um, this morning we're going to talk about greatness and uh, what the Bible has to say about um, the pursuit of, of greatness. Now the pursuit of greatness means different things to different people. Um, so the context of the pursuit of greatness will be looking at the world's um, view of, of greatness and how that's achieved. I want to start off by uh, talking a little bit about um, uh, just sharing with you a story that, that I had. So uh, about me and, and my, my upbringing. So uh, certainly came from humble, humble means, didn't have a whole lot. Um, but my, my mom kind of instilled this, this dream in my head that, you know, you can be more than who you are today. It's just going to require some diligent effort and focus um, in order to get there. Um, I was just talking to uh, my, my kids last night about sports and um, my pursuit, uh, you know, to, to dominate and to win while I was you know, playing a sport. And that is kind of an outcropping of this uh, psychological viewpoint that I had about greatness, that my current state was not where I would like it to be. And in order to get to whatever state I, I'm, I'm striving for, it's going to require me to, um, to, to dominate, to overcome, to conquer um, those, those that are in my way. In order for me to be great, um, I have to defeat others who are higher uh, above me. And I, and, I, and I say that loosely in the context uh, of the lesson um, because I think it's important for us to just look at it at the fundamental level that the world's pursuit of greatness requires a victim. It requires some sort of sacrifice. Somebody's got to be the, somebody's got to lose. And therefore, in order for somebody to win, somebody's got to lose. Um, in order for you to gain, you're going to have to take from somebody else. Um, and, you know, as I was, you know, going through my adolescent years playing sports, um, that was really kind of the focal point was how can I take what, uh, what, what they have? Or maybe not necessarily take, but how can I replace that person who is of higher athletic talent than I am? Um, if there's somebody on varsity and I'm on JV, how do, what do I got to do to take their spot? Because um, somebody's filling that spot. Somebody's already enjoying the fruits of that spot. I want that. Um, so what do I got to do in order to, to be that guy? Um, and two people can't occupy the same status in life at the same time, at least on the same team, right? Um, and... <clears throat> We find that, you know, throughout human history, um, you know, that uh, the pursuit of greatness requires you to see what somebody else has and, and strive for that. Um, greatness also requires a couple of other things. There has it to be an inherent uh, level of strife, um, uh, and maybe strife is not the, the right word. Um, but it is a good word because I'll use it in a, it's written in the scripture here in a second, yeah, in um, another, another setting. But if not strife, there has to be some level of um, persecution, some level of, of struggle going on in your life in order for that 
pursuit of greatness to, to really um, uh, gain roots and, and thus bear fruit. For example, if I'm, if I was, uh, you know, my, my parents were super affluent, um, let's say they were the king and queen of England, and I was born into the royal family, um, I'm already there. As a matter of fact, based on my, uh, based on my birth and, and my bloodline, I may already be in the, the line of secession to be uh, king and queen, or king or queen, depending on your gender, um, at some point in the future. Uh, but if I was born a pauper, right, and I see the royal family parading itself through uh, down the streets and everybody, you know, throwing rice and clapping and, and showing them praise and honor, you know, when I went to bed at night, because of my current status, because of my strife, because of my desire for more, um, I'll dream about being in the... Uh, being in their shoes. Uh, if you think about all the conquerors in human history, that's exactly where they started, right? They started off with looking at someone who is of higher socioeconomic status, higher caste, whatever the case may be, and they dream about tomorrow. What would it be like if I were in their shoes? Um, you know, you, you may think about your, 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 uh, your sports hero. <clears throat> you know, what would it be like to be Michael Jordan, right? That was, you know, kind of my thing back in the day. Obviously, I'm not, I, there was no way, shape, or form I was going to be six foot six, but, you know, that was my striving. I wanted to be like him. I wanted to drive the fancy cars, you know, have everybody know my name, you know, be the best. Um, and as they say, in order to be the best, you got to beat the best. In the book of Genesis, there were two men who were confronted with maybe, well, one man in particular who was confronted with this pursuit for greatness. Um, in Genesis, the 13th chapter, there were two men that were traveling together. One was, uh, the name was Abram and the other was Lot. Now, Abram was uh, chosen, called by God to separate himself from um, his, uh, his family um, and go back to or go to a land, the land of Canaan. Um, and, and God promised him that, hey, if you separate yourself, I will give you this land and um, not just give you this land, but I will give you this land and this land will be a land of prospering for you. It will be a land overflowing with milk and honey. Um, and you can read that in uh, Genesis, the, uh, the 12th chapter. <clears throat> but in Genesis, the 13th chapter, um, it, again, you have to understand that Abram and his family had left the land of Canaan because it was, a, it, it was in famine. Mm -hmm. And they were in a land, uh, the land of Egypt, um, where it was all, all the stuffs that they needed were, um, were plenteous. Mm -hmm. um, and God had called Abram to go back and he, would, and he told him that this land is, is going to be overflowing with blessings, not just for you, but all those of your, uh, of your lineage. So in Genesis, the 13th chapter, his, um, his partner, um, his family member, his cousin, Lot, mm -hmm. uh, traveled along with him. 
So Abram had, you know, his, his, uh, his stuff. He had his wife. He had his flock. He had his servants. Lot had his wife, had his flocks, and had his servants. And they were finding it difficult to coexist together. Um, as it says in verse number 6 of Genesis, the 13th chapter, the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. You know, they, there was a competition, if you will, for, for natural resources, for water, for grazing land. Um, there was, and, and as I mentioned to you before, about strife, right? There was some strife going on here um, with the people. In verse number 7, it says, There was strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. You know, there was, there was some want. There was some struggle there. Mm-hmm. Now, what is strife? Now, strife is simply... Okay, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, have you, you probably heard of the analogy of, you know, crabs in a barrel. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as, as one crab gets the upper hand, there's some strife going on below that crab. Right, because they all want to get out of the pot. You know, none of them wants to die. They know that the only way to survive is to go up and out. But in order to do that, they've got to pull their way up because they don't have legs, right, the way that we do. So in their striving, in their strife, in their striving rather for survival, they grab onto the legs and the pincers and the bodies of the crabs right above them and they pull them down as they're trying to pull themselves out. But we all know that the process of doing that is, it it doesn't, there is no net positive, right? No one gets any closer to the top of the the bowl um, in the process of doing that, but yet and still, these lobsters, these crabs, they continue to do that. As one gets the upper hand, they get pulled down, and then another one gets up, and then that one gets pulled down, and it's just a vicious cycle of, of strife and, and no concept or, or no real gain is, is, uh, is perceived or realized by any one individual. So in verse number seven, you can see that the herdsmen were doing the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. They all knew that in order for their cattle to survive, that they needed water, they needed uh, ample, uh, they needed land for grazing, they needed a bunch of different things, but there was strife between these two herdsmen, right? Because they were saying, no, that's mine, I don't have enough, um, I need it for me, I need it, for, right? And you got to understand that Abram and Lot were family members, right. and yes, their substance was great, but yet and still they were, they had this kind of you know, there was an elephant in the room between them, right? This unusual, uncomfortable relationship that what I've got is mine and what you've got is yours. And so Abram in verse number eight says, we, we, we can't keep doing this. <clears throat> Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we are brethren. Mm-hmm. Now, if there are brethren... You know, why is there strife between them? So, I, I give you another example. I didn't have brothers. 
I didn't have a, a big brother or a little brother, but I had two sisters. And I saw them strife against one another. You know, it wasn't necessarily that they were in competition per se, um, but you know, when you know when birthdays or the holidays came around, right? They had to share the same doll, they had to share the same shoes, um, they had to share the same clothes. You know, if if you know they both saw this doll as as their favorite doll. You know, there was always some strife between the two of them because they had to share. Yet, they were sisters. Paul, or sorry, Abram is, is saying, we can't keep doing this. We can't keep struggling between the two of us while we are yet brethren. Verse number nine, is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. And if thou wilt go to the right hand, I will go to the left. Now, this is where the stories diverge, or the journeys, the pathways diverge. Lot lifted up his, lifted up his eyes, and behold, all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. And this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou, as thou comest unto Zoar. So, what we see here is, Abram is giving his brother, his brother in, in arms, if you will, um, a choice. He says, you can go to the left, or you can go to the right. And what does Lot do? He, he, lo he looks up and he sees that the land, the, the plains of Jordan, are just as plenteous and fruitful as the lands of Egypt. And you know what he's thinking? He's thinking like I would be thinking, like all of us would be thinking, right? I've got these herds that need to be fed. I see the plains of Jordan on one side, and I see this, you know, mountainous, crusty, not so green, uh, highland of Canaan. And I remember what the people of Egypt, you know, what the land barons, the Pharaoh himself, what he did with the land as plenteous as this land that is laid before me. And what did he do? He chose greatness. He chose greatness. And so he went into the, the plains of Jordan. As it says in verse number 11, Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Abram, on the other hand, as it says in verse number 12, dwelled in the land of Canaan. And Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Now, the, this, is, this is, again, I'm using the pursuit of greatness from a worldly context, right? Or from a fleshly context, let's say. Mm -hmm. That our pursuit of things that we don't have, our pursuit of, you know, being, you know, striving for something that others have will ultimately lead us down a pathway of vanity and vexation of spirit. 
Now, you know what I'm talking about with vanity and vexation of spirit. Um, if you have your Bibles, go to the book of Ecclesiastes, um, where the man that was the greatest um, said that all the things that he had, and, and I'll... Um, <clears throat> And we can look at it in, in chapter 2 of the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, he says in uh, verse number 10, or verse number 9, let's say there, uh, Ecclesiastes, the second chapter, in verse number uh, 9, it says, So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. He was at the very top, he was great. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Right? He said greatness was the portion of his labor. He pursued greatness, and when he got it, I mean, it was rightfully his. Then I looked on all the works that my hand had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. There was no net positive. Right. You know, as he is trying, you know, as he was, you know, that crab in the barrel, the lobster in the barrel, whatever the case may be, you know, all of his labor, right? He's continually, you know, taking, conquering, gathering, garnering, if you will. What did he say? He said, all the labor that I labored to do yielded me nothing. There was no net positive. If you look at uh, going back to the book of Genesis. <clears throat> what happened? In Genesis, the 14th chapter. In Genesis, the 14th chapter, something happened to Abram. Or, excuse me, something happened to Lot. Um, well, while he is in the... While he is in, pitched um, beside the, the town of Sodom, Somebody came and conquered all that land. Mm -hmm. It says uh, in uh, verse number 8 of Genesis, the 14th chapter, And there went out the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admah, and the king of Zoabim, and the king of Balad, the same, the same as Zoar, and they joined battle with him in the vale of Siddim. Mm -hmm. With, uh, and I'm going to probably butcher this name, but... I'll give it a. I'll give it the uh, old college try. Cheda Lamora, Ched Chedor, Chedolamur. Let's go with that for the time being. The king of Elam, and with title the king of king of nations, and Amraphel king of Shinar, and Ariok king of Elasar, four kings with five. Okay, so. Bunch of kings versus another bunch of kings. Why? Because they're lobsters, crabs in a barrel. Right? They all want to be great. Right? They're all looking, at, maybe they're looking over at Pharaoh in Egypt and saying, 
man, if I had, if I was like, if I had the substance like Pharaoh has, maybe I'd be great like him, right? Because it, you got to remember, Lot had just said that, you know, the, this, the, the plains of Jordan were just as green and lush as Egypt. The fertile, uh, the fertile crescent, um, you know, the, uh, what do they say, the, uh, the area right around um, where the, uh, the Nile empties out into the, the Mediterranean Sea was just fertile ground, mm -hmm. right? And so these kings were saying, hey, we all want to be great. You know, let's, let's, you know let's, let's do our thing like men do. And so kings against kings. In verse number 10, it says, And the vale of Siddim was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. So they, they fell into these slime pits um, or asphalt pits. It's interesting, um, you know, that, you know, a trap was set. And, you know, as there, and I don't know if it was a natural trap or not, but in any case, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. And they that remained fled to the mountain. And guess, guess what they did? Mm -hmm. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, mm -hmm. Abram's, Abram's brother's son. So Lot was his nephew, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. So what was Lot's, you know, you know all the labor that he did, you know, what was, what did he gain? He didn't gain anything. Even more so, he lost everything. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of, um, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and brother of Aner, and there was confederate with Abram. So Abram had developed a, a partnership with these, uh, these two men. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, those who were men of arms, mm -hmm. born in his own house 318, and pursued them unto Dan, and he divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus, and he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods, and the women and the people." So here is Lot right back to square one. But what does he do? Well, where does Lot go back to? Lot goes back to Sodom. Does he not? He certainly does. Because as we find in Genesis, the 19th chapter, we find him right back again in this place. Mm -hmm. This place that originally, right, he, he thought, hey, if I go there, man, life is going to be so great. I'm going to have all of these things and, and, you know, I'm just going to be the man. He goes back to Sodom. And in Sodom, what happens? What does he say, or how, is, how does he describe his, his experience in Sodom? Well, it says in, 
Um, and I just lost the verse here, but give me a second to find it. Ah, yes. Um, look down at, uh, um, and I laugh because, again, it's, it just is, just is kind of a, 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 it is a great example of all the things that we struggle with on a daily basis in our pursuit of greatness. Um, so if you look at uh, verses 15, in 16. <clears throat> um, it says uh, in verse 15 and 16 of Genesis, the 19th chapter, it says, When the morning arose, and the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the inequity of the city. And yet we have to remember that uh, these, these men... Um, were sent by God, these angels in the form of men were sent by God to warn Lot that God was going to destroy the city and that he ought to, to get out uh, of, the, of this area. Um, but we know, as it says in the New Testament scripture, that Lot was vexed. His soul was vexed on a daily basis. You can find that in, uh, um, and we can, we'll look at it uh, real quickly here in 3 John. Um, and I'll give you the verse here. Flip back here real quick. Sorry, Jude, my apologies. In uh, Jude, the uh, in Jude, in verse number seven, um, it says, "Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them, in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, set forth an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire." And this is what Lot was exposed to on a daily basis. Um, this is, you know, these acts of immorality and unrighteousness, this is what Lot had to face every single day of his life mm -hmm. in his pursuit for greatness. Mm -hmm. And it was vexing to his soul and to his spirit. And in verse number 15 of Genesis, the 19th chapter, we find here that these angels were telling him, you got to get out. Right. Because if you stay, you'll be pulled back down to the bottom. You'll fall victim just like everybody else falls victim to the consuming fire of the lust of the flesh. Mm -hmm. And in verse number 16, it says, And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hands of his two daughters, mm -hmm. the Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. Right. And then what happens? And it came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad, he said, Escape for thy life. 
Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. And, get, and this is what Lot said. Oh, not so, my Lord. Behold, now thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast shown unto me in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. Behold, now this city is near to, to flee unto you, and it is a little one. Oh, let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said unto him, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city for, that, for the which thou hast spoken. Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. Though, therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun was risen upon the earth when, when Lot entered into Zoar. And we can read that, you know, as he is, you know, going into this city in verse number 26, that his wife looked back. Now, we've talked about, you know, looking back in a number of other verses, but, you know, you know, when we've lost everything, we want to get a final glimpse of that greatness so we can keep it with us. You know, keep it in, stored in our memory banks. And his wife looked back and she was turned into a pillar of salt. The pursuit of, of greatness in a worldly context falls right in line with the works of the flesh. You know, the, the book of Galatians tells us in verse in chapter 5, uh, starting, at, uh, um, starting at verse number 16 and reading through, certainly in verse number 19, it says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, Envies, envies, murders, drunkenness, uh, revelings, and such like. Now, such like is a catch-all. You know what Paul is saying? If, it, if I haven't named them explicitly in the sentence beforehand, anything that is like any of those is a work of the flesh. Right. And if you, if you can look at what I just mentioned, or what we just looked at an example not just with Lot, but also with Solomon, that a pursuit of worldly greatness or physical greatness, you know, you know, trying to take what others have, which is obviously a violation of, if we were on the Old Testament law, it's a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. You know, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's possessions. <clears throat> well, if you're great... There can't be two kings. There can only be one. There can only be one who is great. And we'll look at that from a spiritual context as well. But there can only be one that is great. So in order for me to be great, I got to take what you have. I have to feel, I have to, I have to position myself and overcome you in order to, 
um, to be at that status. And that is really what it falls into um, idolatry, emulations, selfish ambitions, which is another word for strife, heresies, seditions, being envious of what others have. All of those are works of the flesh. In verse number, um, continuing on in uh, Galatians, the fifth chapter, in verse number 21, um, it says, I, uh, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I've told you also in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So that adds another complexion to it, is that in my pursuit of greatness, I'm also sacrificing something. I'm sacrificing the kingdom of God. You know, if, if I want to be the greatest in the land, I have to give in or invest in the works of the flesh. You know, again, I, I, I go back to my, my years as a young person. Um, and Heather was just telling me in the car yesterday that I'm, I'm a little too old and a little flabby in the midsection um, to, to be athletically great. She basically said, I'm too old. I mean, she said, Thomas, you physically can't be the greatest anymore. So that's the reason why you're trying to live vicariously through your children for, to push them to be great. And you know what? She's absolutely right. And, and I'm not alone in this. How many of you fathers and mothers have looked at your child and said, you know what? This kid's going to be great. This kid, there's no other kid like my kid. This kid is going to be, you know, the Willie Mays, you know, the Joe Namath, um, the Empress Supreme or the whatever the case may be. This kid is going to be the president. You know, you know, when you when you send your kid off to school, you know, you want your kid to be the most popular. Right. You want your kid to be the smartest. You want you want your kid to be at the top of the class, not the bottom of the class, but the very top. You want your child to be great. And what do you tell your kid? Just like I told my kids. Be the best. In everything that you do, be the best. Now, some of us, you know, who are, you know, who, who may have a little bit of wisdom. Not me, but maybe all of you other than myself and maybe told their kids, I want you to be the best, but I want you to be the best that you can be. Right? What does that mean? Come on. I want you to be the best that you can be. Okay? And? Do you know what the best that I can be is? No. No, you don't know what the best that your child can be. You can't tell the future. You can't look into their genome and say, this is their maximum potential. And child, I want you to reach said maximum. Nobody knows. But we tell them, be the best <clears throat> that you can be. But while you're being the best that you can be, you need to beat some other people in order to be the best. I mean, the measuring stick that we're going to use to determine your success is going to be in comparison to maybe a child who maybe is a little bit bigger, stronger, faster, smarter. Mm -hmm. We do that every day of the week. That 
pursuit of those types of greatnesses is a work of the flesh because of the lust of the flesh, right? It's, it's my desire, if you will, that my kids be better than me. Ooh, ooh, did I, did I touch something there? Right? We don't want our kids to be worse off than we are. We want our kids to be better. What does that look like? Well, that looks like this. I want my son to be taller. I want him to have broader shoulders. I want his musculature to be far superior to, uh, to mine. Tom, Thomas III is looking at me. But, you know, <clears throat> that's what I want my son to be. I, I want my son to be the CEO of the company. I want him to own his own company. You know, when he raises his family, I want him to raise his family in a larger house. I want him to have finer clothes. I want him to live longer. I want him to be smarter. I want him to be all of the things that I am not. I want him to be me plus some. Why? If not the lust of the flesh. The pride, of, uh, the pride of life and the lust of the others. What, did, do you think God wanted his... Just think about the relationship with God and Christ. Mm -hmm. Or between God and Christ. The book of Hebrews said that Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Right. But what if... And, I, and, I'm, and, I, and we know that this is an impossibility because God is a spirit. He's not subject to the flesh as we are. But I, I use that, I, I, let's just use the analogy here for the, for the purpose of, of the lesson. What if God wanted his son to be the best that you can be? I want him to be better than me. What if God had the same thoughts that we have? But God doesn't have the same thoughts that we have. Because, as it says in verse number 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters in Christ, the type of love that God is talking about is love of self-sacrifice for others. Right. So, you are never taking, you are always giving. Right? right? Um, peace. Godliness and contentment is great gain, right? Peace is, is one of the things that goes along or is a byproduct of contentment and godliness. Mm -hmm. I'm content with what I got. I, I, I am blessed by God to be where I'm, I am at. Um, I'm striving for a different thing that will not yield fruit, uh, you know, what I would say riches and wealth in a physical sense, but I'm striving for things that will bring about riches and wealth in a spiritual sense. Mm -hmm. And that brings about peace. You know, you may not get, uh, grasp that, but you can look at, uh, what is it, uh, Brother Marzette? What's that verse that um, we love to read? Um, I want to say it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 19. Um, maybe I have that wrong. Uh, Colossians 
That's not it. What, the one about uh, um, whatsoever things are, think of those. Philippians. Philippians. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Uh, Philippians 4.8. I knew we were going to land on it. But, you know, Philippians 4.8 tells, tell, uh, Paul wrote to the church of Philippi, you know, you think on things that virtue, praise, and honor, right? You're, you're constantly thinking about spiritual spiritual things, those things that um, bring about spiritual wealth. But what does it say? It says a byproduct of that is peace. Yes. Which is also, again, as it states in Galatians, the fifth chapter and verse number 22, a fruit of the Spirit. Guess what is also a fruit of the Spirit? Meekness. Mm -hmm. Moses was the, the meekest of his time. Why? Um, because he opened himself up to the instruction of God. He never thought of himself more highly than he was, which is something that you need to have in your mindset in order to pursue greatness. Think about it for a second. If I believe that I am great or that I will achieve greatness at some point, I also have to believe that I'm better than you and you and you and you and you and you. Right. Because we can't all be great. Right. If I am going to be great, I have to place myself psychologically in a level above others. But one who is meek does not do that. Mm -hmm. I go back to the book of Hebrews as an example. Jesus, as it says again, who, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself and came to this earth in the form of a man. Okay, you may not grasp that. Go to uh, the scripture reading this morning. Um, and brother, uh, people, if you could read that one more time for us. Matthew 18, 18th chapter, verses 1 through 5. And it reads, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. So, <clears throat> there's another example in the New Testament, well, in, in, in the Gospels, a mother, a mother of two of Jesus' disciples, the sons of Zebedee, right. um, came to Jesus and said, you know, when you get there, mm -hmm. to, when, when you get to heaven, mm -hmm. um, I'd like you to consider my two sons. Mm -hmm. And I want you to set one son on the right hand and the other son on the left hand. Mm -hmm. And you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, it's not my throne. I don't have the ability to make those choices. It's my father's throne. Right. And what we also see here in, in this verse 
is he says um, in Matthew, the 18th chapter, again, verses one through five, the same question posed itself by these the, by these same disciples. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Where does that come from, brothers and sisters in Christ? Why would that question even come out of the mouth of, some, uh, of, uh, of the 12 disciples of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Well, the flesh, absolutely. It is absolutely natural for these men to ask that question because it is an outcropping of each and every one of our desires to be great, to go above our status, to go above our state or our caste or socioeconomic um, or level, whatever the case may be. We're always striving for more. Why do you go to school? To learn more. Why do you go to college? To, to learn more. No, that's not why you go to school or you go to college. Nobody cares about learning, right? People only care about what learning produces, what, what learning has the ability to afford you. People don't go to college just to learn. Why would you go into debt hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to a place to learn? I don't love knowledge that much to go into that kind of debt. But what I do know is that if I go into that, if I go to college and I learn whatever it is that I learn and get that degree, that that will open more doors for me to get more to be the person that I have dreamed in my mind when I was younger uh, to, uh, to increase the probability of being that guy. By virtue of that, I'm not doing what I went to school to do. If you ask me anything about cellular biology right now, I'd probably scratch my head. So that is <laughs> a case in point of what I'm talking about. We always want to get more and we're always trying to be the greatest. And these disciples, in their strife amongst, one's, amongst one another. Now, we don't know a lot about what happened, what was going on in the mind of Judas Iscariot. But there was something there that Satan was able to exploit. Why did Judas betray the only begotten Son of Jesus Christ? The man who he had professed a strong belief in by virtue of the fact that he was one of his disciples. Something was there. I don't know what it is, but something was there. I don't know what it is, but I know it was either the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, or the lust of the eyes. All of those three have to do with taking, conquering, defeating, grabbing, Taking what you have and making it mine. Mm -hmm. I have to get it. Because I don't got it. We know that Judas Iscariot sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Mm -hmm. Now, if Judas was an extremely rich man, mm -hmm. you think Judas would have asked for more money? Mm -hmm. I'm certain he would. Mm -hmm. You look back at the you study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can see that the servants, the disciples of Christ, lived humble lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, their Lord and Savior was a carpenter. Mm -hmm. 
So for 30 pieces of silver, he sold Jesus out. He betrayed him. After he betrayed him, there was no net gain, was there? There was no net gain in Judas' eyes. So much so that Judas said, take this money back. Guess what the Jews said? We don't want it. That's blood money. <laughs> no, no thank you. We don't want it back. Do whatever, you, <laughs> do whatever it is that you want to do with it, but we're not taking it back. That's your money. You got to live with that. He was 30 pieces of silver richer, but he wasn't richer at all. There was no net gain. Let's look at Peter for an example. Peter set himself as the most vocal of all the disciples. You know, when Jesus said, you know, all of y'all are going to betray me. Peter said, nope, not I, Christ, not I, Savior. Jesus said, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me thrice. Peter was like, not, not going to do it. Because I'm Peter. The stone, Cephas. Mm -hmm. And what we do, we see that, it, you know, where did that come from? Where did that hubris come from? Mm -hmm. I don't know where it came from. It came from one of three places. The lust of the flesh, the pride of life, or the lust of the eyes. Mm -hmm. He did deny Christ. No net gain, right? Afterwards, it said that he... He left the, the hall, this, this place where Jesus was scourged, um, weeping bitterly. No net gain. In Matthew, the uh, 23rd chapter. <clears throat> it says, all therefore, uh, and this is Matthew, the 23rd chapter and verse number three. It says, all therefore whatsoever that bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. And he's talking about the, the scribes and Pharisees that sin in Moses' seat, as it says in verse number one. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. And why they do this, right? They do this because, you know, this is a, a signification of their greatness, right? They love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats and synagogues because they are great. They, they enjoy the greetings in the markets and to be called to men, rabbi, rabbi. But be, not, but be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all, all ye are brethren. And, no, and call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Verse number 11. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And that's where I, I, I want to conclude the lesson about what the real pursuit of greatness looks like. 
in a spiritual context, and we just got the reading in, in Matthew, the 18th chapter, you know, verses uh, 1 through 5, right? You have to humble yourself as a child. Jesus continues this thought by saying that the greatest among you is the servant among you. Mm-hmm. So that takes a that is completely con- contradictory, excuse me, to all the messages you've been giving to your child. Mm-hmm. Be the best, be the greatest, be the, you know, whatever the case may be. Be on the upper end of the scale. You know, if you go to school, don't stop. You got to get a master's, you got to get a PhD, and then when you get your PhD, you get your doctorate. Well, that, you know, that is a doctor, and then, you know, just don't stop there and invent something, be something, gather, right, right? And we're always kind of trying to broaden our borders. We're always trying to, as it says, uh, enlarge the borders of our garments. Now, you may say you're not doing that, but look at the clothes that you're wearing right now. You are not wearing the same brands with the same, uh, what they say, uh, uh, the same quality as the clothes you wore when you were a child. Look at your feet. Your feet, your shoes aren't as good as the shoes you were wearing when you were a child. And, I, and we've got a mother and a, a, a mother and a father and a child of a mother or father here in this room. I know it, right? You know it. We are abundantly blessed by God. We have gotten more and amassed more and and been more. But that's not what Jesus is looking at. That's not what God is looking at. He says again, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. And I guess that's where I can stop. Is our pursuit for greatness in the eyes of God goes completely opposite to the pursuit of greatness that the world is pursuing. And what we will also find in our pursuit of spiritual greatness is that there is a net positive. Whereas the pursuit of earthly greatness is not a net positive. It's far, far less than that. Go back and read the book of Revelation. Go back and read about um, the the great, um, what do they they call her? Um, Babylon. Um, the, The great... The great, uh, and I believe this is what, what they call it, the great whore, the great uh, temptress, um, harlot, excuse me, not whore, but harlot, uh, Babylon, uh, the, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. You know, what happens when the system, the structure falls down? You know the greatest fear of the rich? The greatest fear of the rich is the day when there are no poor people. Amen. That, that's the greatest fear. And that's the reason why people fear socialism. Socialism 
is the greatest fear of those who are benefactors of capitalism. Because what that means is that we're all on the same level. There's no poor and therefore there's no rich. There's an even distribution of wealth amongst everybody. And they're afraid of that. Some people will say that socialism does not um, breed progress. And they're absolutely right. Because in our, the worldly pursuit of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it breeds advancements, right? If, I'm a, if there are two farmers side by side who have the same resources, but one wants to get a leg up on the other, the only way that's going to happen is one has got to be more efficient. And technology makes, um, brings about an efficiency, so they've got to advance their technology in order to be more efficient. So the less, imp less inputs, greater output, that farmer will grow in status more than the farmer next to him. And inevitably, he'll, grow, he'll amass enough riches to buy out that farm. See how that, how that works? It's, it's just, you know, crabs in a barrel. Just, I'm going to pull you down in order for me to get back up. But again, even that is a net negative, certainly not a net positive. Because, as we know, God is not slack concerning his promises. In that he will send his son to redeem his body. And in doing so, the earth and all the things in the earth and the elements will burn with fervent heat. And will utterly be destroyed. Interestingly, it sounds a lot like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm -hmm. And if we who are Christians dare look back to remember what we've lost, to reflect on what we have lost, we'll be like Lot's, Lot's wife. We won't make it. We won't survive. So we constantly have to look forward, keep our, keep our eyes and our hearts, our desires our intentions based on serving God and living the life of a humble servant. As we just got through reading here in Matthew, the 23rd chapter. If we humble ourselves as a child, if we humble ourselves as a servant, God will exalt us in his kingdom. This, uh, this scripture describes the kingdom of God as existing on one street. Will there be many mansions? Sure there will be. Because that's where Jesus said that he um, is going back to the Father to do. Uh, to, he said, in my Father's house are many mansions. Mansions, mind you. Many, mind you. Meaning that there aren't any duplexes. There aren't any one-bedroom apartments. There aren't any single-room flats, Right? There are mansions, and we will all inhabit all of those many mansions on that same street of gold. Mm -hmm. As long as we do, as long as we live the life of a servant here on this side of life. Mm -hmm. So the message is yours this morning um, as we as we go through the remainder of this week and certainly go into a, a new week. Don't get caught up in, in what the world does. 
Um, if you're not the richest, if you're not the strongest, you're not the smartest, God doesn't care about that anyway. That is of no cons consequence to God. Um, the 